The sermon text reading is from Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately, as you enter it, you will find a a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And and they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You realize we've been in Mark's gospel now for a year. Year, yeah. We're we're ten chapters in. Now we've had a few other series along the way. Summertime, we did a couple things different. But it's amazing to think that uh, with this passage, we arrive at the last week of the life of Jesus. But we still have five chapters more to go. We're going to finish at Easter. That's the plan, right? We'll have a few breaks in between, the sorts of things like that. But, but uh, we're in the last week of his life, five chapters to go, which means that what is Mark doing? Mark, Mark as you know, it loves an economy of words. He's, this is the shortest gospel. And yet, when it comes to the last week of the life of Jesus, he's getting really granular with us. He's slowing down. All the gospels do this, the last week of the life of Jesus. But Mark really slows down. Why? Right? Why? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because this passage traditionally is read or preached Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And that's because it's called the triumphal entry. Jesus' last time into Jerusalem. And what we're looking at today is that this is an entry into the last week of his life. And specifically, here's what Mark wants to see. The coming king. In fact, everything that happens between now and and the crucifixion, and of course the resurrection. Everything is about his kingship. And so Mark is wanting us to see that this morning. Now because of time, we have the family meeting right after the service. I've only got two points for you this morning. And uh, so we're going to move along. And here's what I want us to look at. I want us to look at the king that people are expecting. Like the king for our time is what I'm calling this. But then secondly, we're going to look at the king for all ages. Who is this king? Who actually is he? What is his character? So let me jump right in because of the sake of time. I want to do that now. And what does it mean that he's a king for our time? Now, right prior to this passage, it says that Jesus was coming up from Jericho. Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level. So we're talking about a grueling march, a grueling hike in the dust and the heat, along with the pilgrims from Galilee that were accompanying he and the disciples. Right? This is a, this is a real journey of sorts. And... Fifteen years ago, Kirst and I had the opportunity to make the exact same journey from Jericho up to Jerusalem, except it was in an air-conditioned motor coach. 
for us. It was a little bit different of an experience going up there. But let me tell you, it's no less exciting. Because when you get to the Mount of Olives, you're looking at the east side of Jerusalem and all of its magnificent glory. Suddenly, you come over that hill and you see it. But even for the time of Jesus, for the disciples and the pilgrims, can you imagine what it was like for them? Like, they don't have pictures. They don't have videos, right? They, they, maybe for some of them, it was the first time they've ever seen the holy city before. And they come up. After 4,000 feet of climbing, they come up to the Mount of Olives, and they see not only what we saw 15 years ago, but they see the temple as well, in all of its glory, as it were. This great institution, this great edifice, this is what they're singing about. I mean, this is what the pilgrims did when they came up to Jerusalem for the festivals that they would sing along the way. Now, that's all just in verse 1 here. But what Mark does next, verses 2 through 6, is that he slows down. And he goes into a lot of detail. He spills a lot of ink on an errand concerning a donkey, right? Now, we're told in verse 2 that, that, that two disciples were sent. We're not told who the disciples were. Now, I'm here, I'm here to tell you I know who they were. It was James and John. Remember last week, if you're here for James and John, remember what James and John wanted? James and John wanted to sit on the left hand and the right hand of God in his glory, right? So I can only imagine this week Jesus says, hey, boys, I got a job for you. <laughs> you, didn't you guys want to sit in my left hand? Oh, good. He's bringing this up again. Like that. Will, will you guys go get, grab a donkey for me? Yeah, like, like, you talk about humility, right? Okay, that's totally conjecture on my part. I have no idea who they were. But two are sent on the way, and they go into Bethpage. Now, this is a village that had magnificent views, excellent real estate opportunities in Bethpage because they're up on the Mount of Olives here. But there was a whole lot else going on. And we're not told if this is prearranged or if this is prophecy, but he says, look, here's what's happening. You're going to go into the village. You're going to, you're going to see it tied up there, right? And you're going to say, um, you're going to start to untie it, and they're going to say to you, uh, why are you taking my car? Right? That was their transportation today. Well, why are you taking something that, that belongs to us here? And, and they're going to say, oh, okay, you can have it. And a lot of the fact that you said, my Lord wants it, that sort of thing like that. So, again, I'm not sure if it's prophecy not sure why, but it's this. Here's the important thing. You wouldn't know this from just reading this passage. You only would know this by knowing the context. This is a fulfillment of a magnificent prophecy. And it comes from Zechariah, one of the last books of the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9. Listen to what it says about the coming Messiah. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion was another name for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why is Mark spending so much time on this in this passage? Half the passage is about a donkey. He's saying, the king has come. We've been waiting. We've been waiting. And this is really the setup for verses 7 through 10. Because what we see is that the pilgrims, which are probably from Galilee, they probably all came up together to Jerusalem. They're excited as well. Once Jesus gets on the donkey, they are so excited because they understand something royal is happening. How do we know that? Look at verses 7 and 8. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So they made a sort of saddle. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. Scott, what does this have to do with the king? Well, a couple things here. First of all, Jesus never, ever got on any donkey, horse, or anything like that. This is the only recorded event like that. 
which means Jesus is doing something unique. When you came to Passover, Passover, by the way, was the greatest of all the festivals in Jerusalem. And when you came to Jerusalem, when you came to the festival, all the pilgrims walked in. Now, part of that's because most people didn't have transportation. They didn't have chariots. They didn't have great horses, things like that. So most of them were just walking through the gates. They're just travelers in that way. And that's what Jesus was. Jesus was a man of the people, we might say. And so Jesus being poor as well, he didn't have transportation. So when Jesus says, I want to come in on a donkey, this is significant. He's setting himself apart. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. But why then do, do the, the, the pilgrims, why do they throw their cloaks on the ground? Why do they wave what traditionally are the palm branches? We're not told that here. It's just leafy vegetation from the fields. But why do they do that? Well, a couple things I want to say. First, imagine that you are an ancient pilgrim. What do you have to your name in terms of material possessions? Not much. This was a big deal to take your cloak and throw it on the ground. See, this is a dusty pathway filled with muck and dung. And can you imagine your one possession or one of your very few possessions that you own as a poor, ancient person, you throw it down. Every commentator says the exact same thing because of cultural context. This was a sign of royalty. Something special is happening here. And so they throw their, their, their prized possession. They throw their cloak down to be trampled by a donkey in the dung, friends. Right? And then they're, they're, they have these, these palm branches or these, this leafy vegetation. sort of like ancient confetti. Basically, right here. They're having a little parade, as it were, along the parade route. And they're, they're waving these branches. This was a sign of royalty. And so there's expectation. We see the expectation, verses 9 and 10. So they come in singing. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, we were just singing the song Hosanna just a second ago. And probably some of you are saying, now, I've been singing that song for years. I have no idea. What does that mean? Right? What does Hosanna mean after all? Well, Hosanna meant literally save us now. Not just save us, but save us now. And it came from a section of the Psalms from Psalm 113 to 118. And these are called the Hallel Psalms. They were sung at Passover. And the finale of Psalm 113 through 118 This is the very end, verses 25 and 26, verbatim, this is what they're singing. The very end of the Hallel Psalms. Why do I share that with you this morning? For the Hallel of it. Uh, If you're, you're, by the way, if you're first time here, you're saying, is he always this corny? And for the rest of you, the answer is what? Yes, of course he is. That's who who I am, for the Hallel of it. Okay, sorry about that. Just I had to throw that in there. Um, So, the Hallel Psalms, right? They're just singing about the coming of a king. The coming of a Messiah. Verbatim, verse 10 is the very end of the Hallel Psalms here. There is royal expectation that a king has come. But here's the key. Here's the key. They knew a king was coming. They said to themselves, yes, we've been waiting for centuries for this moment. And we're here to see it takes place. We're going to welcome our king in here. But what kind of king were they looking for? That's the key. What kind of king? We're given some, some hints here because they celebrate David and the dynasty. You see, they're no different from the disciples. I mean, remember, where were we just last week? I just mentioned James and John. 
right? Jesus says, I'm about to be crucified. I'm about one week away from being crucified. Here's what's going to happen. And remember how they respond, right? They're like, hey, 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 can we sit on your left hand and your right hand? We want power. We talked about that last week, didn't we? And then uh, several more times before that, what are the disciples, what are they constantly doing? They're, They're jockeying for position. And because they believe that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he's going to do two things. He's going to overthrow the corrupt officials of Jerusalem because they see the corruption of religion. They don't want anything to do with it. And then number two, overthrow the Romans. This is the moment. Remember, just one century prior to the coming of Jesus, there was a very famous revolt, the Maccabean Revolt. It was one of the very few times that the Romans had ever been defeated. Now, they took the land back, which is why they now have overlords called the Romans. But at this point, right, what's happened? They're saying to themselves, it's about to happen here. It, we're about to experience freedom. This is the, the crowning moment, as it were, pun intended. Like, this is the moment for Jesus, right? We're going we're gonna to be no longer having to deal with, uh, with the politics of Rome, and the corruption of Jerusalem. And of course, we know that even Peter hoists the sword. The moment that Jesus is arrested, he's still, even the moment of arrest, he's still thinking, this is the moment. Somehow, way, Jesus is going to overthrow our overlords. And I think this is our story 2,000 years later. I don't think we're any different, friends. Now, I say, well, yeah, but we know he was crucified. We know he was resurrected. But how do we live our lives between the Sundays? How do we, you know, uh, Kirsten and I have been uh, watching The Crown, right? I've mentioned that a couple times. Uh, season five, uh, we're still waiting for season six but because of the strike. Maybe we'll get it 10 years from now. Who knows? All right. But it follows the, the life of Buckingham Palace, the House of Windsor, Queen Elizabeth in particular. And in season five, what you see is that Prince Charles is coming of age. Now, he's, he's jockeying for position as well. And what, but what he knows is that, that, the, that the relevance of the crown is falling out of fashion. And there's this one particular scene, right? There's this one particular scene where he says, Mummy, right? Very, very British there. Mummy, uh, the palace must change, he says. Like, we, we must change. Like, there were surveys done, and we know this from real life, that, that once... Uh, once the televi- once the, the crown was televised, not the show, that is, but they were televised, the proceedings, things like that, it, they became much more in the limelight, let's say. And so the going-ons, comings and goings of a Buckingham Palace became more and more important. And so what Prince Charles was saying was like, we need to be relevant. This is, we got to give them what they want. We got to give what the people want. And Jesus would say, nothing could be farther from the truth. See, I think that's what we do. I think we do the exact same thing as people. We have a certain view of what Jesus should look like. Now, here's how you know you're worshiping a false Messiah. Now, I'm going to come back to this here towards the end of the sermon. But let me say it now. Here's how you know you're worshiping a false Messiah. Because the Messiah you worship, the Jesus that you love, likes everything that you like, and he dislikes everything that you dislike. He never confronts you. You know what's fascinating? There's still surveys that show in post-Christian secular America, somewhere between 30 and 40% of all people, when they are asked to be identified in terms of religion, they say Christian, they say born-again Christian. And I hear a percentage like that, I go, no way. No way. And here's why I know that it can't possibly be true. It's because of how often these, these surveys are worded. 
Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior? Yes, born-again Christian, therefore. But there's nothing on lordship. You see, there's a whale of a difference. You can say that Jesus is the Savior of my life. He's, the, he's taken away my sin, but he's not Lord of your life. See, you can say that, that Jesus saved me, but my sexuality is mine. You can say that Jesus has saved me, but my financial institutions, my banking, my pocketbook, they're mine. Now, this is so important. I want to come back to that here after the second point. But I want to ask you this question at the end of the first point. Did Jesus come to overthrow the Romans and the corrupt Jewish officials, or did he come to overthrow you? See, the pilgrims with Jesus didn't get that, but we don't either. There's, hallelujah, Hosanna, who's come to take away our enemies. Man, you know how easy that is when you're, you're a, you know, politically you're a Republican? And you're like, those damn Democrats, right? <laughs> Something like that. Like, like, how could they possibly call themselves Christians? Or vice versa, Democrats say that about Republicans, right? Or one ideology says to another. I mean, we are so polarized today. Some of you know I was a political science major. I'm fascinated by the political landscape. But I'm, I'm utterly fascinated by the fact that, that we have gods other than capital G God in this country. For, and for those of us who identify ourselves as Christians on surveys, it's very apparent that there's a gap between the Messiah that we say we follow and the one that's presented to us here. And I want to show you how that's the case here in the second point. Here's the actual king who shows up. Not the one that we, we, we say. You know, Blaise Pascal, the famous mathematician, philosopher, he said, God made man in his image and man returned the compliment. <laughs> Did you like that? Man returned the compliment. I think that's what we do here. King for all ages. Let me show you two traits about, about how he's a different king. He can't be made in our image. First thing here, it's a cult. You say, why, why is that important here? More context. Who came to Passover in Jerusalem this year? Oh, lots of pilgrims, right? But who else came? Pilate. You say, wait a minute. Pilate was in his palace when Jesus was arrested. Ah, he was. But he didn't live there. And did you know that, that Pilate lived 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem in a place called Caesarea Maritime? Caesarea Maritime, we were there because this trip was all about going all over Israel. We were at Caesarea Maritime. Let me tell you, it, that place is gorgeous. It's right on the Mediterranean, right? So, so this guy, Pontius Pilate, has a palace, has a villa, but because he's the, the governor of Judea, sometimes he has to go up to things like Passover at Jerusalem. Now, why would he go to Passover? Here's a pagan. Why would he go to Passover of all the festivals? And here's why. Passover was more than just a religious festival. Right? Remember what Passover was about? It was about freedom from Egypt, from overlords. And so guess what? Maccabean revolt. What was the flavor of things at the time of Jesus? We know this from elsewhere. Revolution was afoot. And so as the Roman governor, as the face of Rome, as the face of the Caesar, why does he go to Jerusalem for the Passover? To ensure there wasn't revolution. And so imagine that 60 miles of a journey with all the Romans, with the legions coming in, the glint off the armor, the glory of Rome, the, the flags flying in the wind. He comes in on what? A steed of war. He comes in with, with arrogance and power, oppression, to remind them, that they are slaves. He comes in with war 
in violence through the west gate. Where does Jesus come in? Through the east gate. What does he come in on? What kind of king? On a foal, on a donkey. This is a picture. Zechariah, remember chapter 9, verse 9. Humility, he says. Pilate comes in representing the world's sense of power, the arrogance, and the violence. Jesus comes in with humility and for peace. He said, so different. So who is he? He's a king of humility. But second, Hosanna. He's a king of salvation. Remember what we said. We said they say, Hosanna, which meant praise be to God. Lord, save us now. But he's about to save us from the Romans. But Jesus says, yes, I have come to save you now this week. But it's not going to be in the way that you think. Why do we know that? Because of verse 11. Let me read to you verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem. So the parade has taken place. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I have to tell you, when I first read this, you talk of an anticlimactic. Here's the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, is coming into the holy city of Jerusalem. There's a little parade, probably of a few hundred people. It lasts for a few minutes. And Jesus, it says, comes into the temple, or comes into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, and guess what? There's no one there. There's no one there to greet him. There's no more parade. There's no more king of kings. In fact, the other text in Matthew and Luke tell us that no one noticed that Jesus came into Jerusalem. You would think that if this man is a king of kings, people might notice. But remember, he comes in on a donkey. He's set apart, don't you see? Yes, he, he rides in. He's set apart. He does not walking in. He's set apart. But how is he set apart? In humility. And he's set apart further. Now, here's what's fascinating. When he says that he comes into the temple, in verse 11, this is also the fulfillment of another prophecy from the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, who is this talking about? John the Baptist. Chapter 1, we, I preached on this, and I actually refer back to Malachi 3, 1. So this is a fulfillment of John the Baptist. But then, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... And the messenger of the covenant, this is messianic language, by the way, the messenger of the covenant, the covenant of salvation, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus is back. Now, why is, that, why is, that, why is this context important here? Because of what something that Ezekiel says in chapter 43. Ezekiel was also a prophet. And it says that, that, that according to Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple and it goes out the east gate. But you know what it says in chapter 43? It says the glory of the Lord will return by way of the Mount of Olives. We'll enter in through the east gate to the temple. When Jesus looks at the temple, there's no one there to greet him. There's no glory being given to him, lauded over him. But don't you see this is fulfillment. The glory of the Lord has returned. The glory of the Lord has come back in to the temple. But you see, we're going to find that in a couple weeks. Mike's actually going to preach this in a couple weeks. The glory of the Lord was not in the temple proper. The glory of the Lord was in him. And the temple will be raised to the ground in a generation. This is the reason why 15 years ago, we came over the hill to Mount of Olives and there's no temple to be seen. 
because it was raised to the ground. Clearly, the glory of the Lord was not in the temple. God had left that edifice. God had left that institution. But the glory was in Jesus himself, who is salvation for the nations. You see, Jesus was not going to settle for just overthrowing the Romans. He was not going to settle for overthrowing the corrupt officials of Judaism, of the religion. Jesus would not be satisfied until he overthrew sin and death itself. Don't you see? That's why he can't just simply like what you like. He can't simply dislike what you dislike. He has to overthrow you as well. He has to overthrow me as well. Jesus came not to set up a a small kingdom. You see, overthrowing the Romans would have been small. Overthrowing corrupt Judaism was small in the greater scheme of the cosmos. Jesus came to overthrow sin and death that had rendered a rip in the fabric of life, the flourishing of life for all of humanity, for the whole world. Jesus came to be that king. He came to be that Lord. Here's where I conclude. When you leave here today, even before you get to Monday morning, probably, but certainly by tomorrow, you have a choice. You have a choice to serve one of two kings. You can serve the king that you have designed in your mind and in your heart, or you can serve, or you can serve the king of these scriptures. What do you mean, Scott? Some of you are, are single, and you're going to go on a date, and you're going to bring your date back to your apartment or vice versa, his or her apartment, and you're going to have a choice. What king will you serve in your sexuality? Right? Or it's in your marriage. It's the same issue, actually. Which king will you serve? Or it's a harsh word. Or you want to say something to, to a roommate or, or to a spouse, and, and, and one king would allow you to get away with saying harsh things. Another king would say, no. Surrender your mouth. Surrender your tongue. You see? Right? Um, you're, in, you're in sales, a business, and you have an opportunity to make a lot of money this week. But it's going to require you to, to not say some things that are true about the company. Or maybe you'll fudge the numbers just a little bit. Which king will you serve? Or maybe it's an opportunity to sell your house at some point. And maybe you can make more money if you didn't say a few things about the truth and the true nature of your house. Which king will you serve? You see, that's where it matters. He can't simply be your Savior. He has to be your Lord, you see. And every day we have a choice. Every day we have an opportunity to say, will you be the king of my heart? Will you be the king of my life? Will you be the king of every aspect of what it means to be human? So, where I conclude, just to ask you this morning, which king will you serve? The king of our time? The king that that meets our needs and allows us to be comfortable with the king that says, I must overthrow your heart. I must show you my love. I must show you my grace and my mercy that I'm a king, not only worth submitting to, but you must submit to me so that you might have true life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for sending us a true king to truly free us. That Passover was about you passing over sin and death, passing over us in order to conquer sin and death, I should say. Thank you, Father, that that because of your blood, you passed over and you conquered sin and death itself. Father, you set us free. And so, Lord, would you you remind us of your greatness and your goodness this morning as we continue in our worship to you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Now we respond to God's word first through confession and then through confession to the table. You know, one of the sayings goes like this, that a God that we create 
can't be bigger than us. And so in the places where we have created that God, right, the one that doesn't challenge us, those are the places we feel most helpless probably, where we aren't changing, where we keep making those same decisions. And so what